We're going to be returning today to Galatians chapter 4. Maybe this is your first time visiting with us or your first time around us, uh, maybe watching in at home. We're in a series of messages through the New Testament book of Galatians. And they bring us here to this passage in verse 8 in a message I call, Why Would You Want to Go Back? Verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Why would you want to go back? Or as Paul puts it in this passage, how is it that you turn again? Now, Paul is addressing the Gentile, the non-Jewish people uh, who were a part of the churches at Galatia. He had founded these churches. He had led these people to Christ. He had taught them in a very significant and serious ministry, a very blessed ministry. And uh, now he is concerned because he sees them going back, specifically going back to a system of rules uh, that though it was of the Jewish law, it still was a system of rules. And it would be very similar to what they had experienced under idolatry. God had made some very powerful statements. In fact, they're all over the Bible about idolatry. And I picked out one to share with you this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 31, where God said, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. That's idolatry. Wherever it is spread, people have worshipped the gods of their own making in a system of worship that was in a way of their own choosing, but it was led and dominated by someone. Someone told them what they had to do in order to worship these gods of their own making. And they turned to horrible things, abominable things, God called them. Violent things, sexual things, and even things that were very deadly. Even human sacrifice was on the list. And the sacrifice of their own children. God said, when you go into the land of Canaan, don't you adopt their ways. Don't you think that you're going to worship me that way? Because God is is not like these other gods that men have made. The one true God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We're not going to do that. And so now Paul calls to the Galatians and reminds them, God has got you out of that. Now you know God. Or even more, he says, God knows you. You know, it's great to know God's name. But aren't you glad this morning that God knows your name? I mean, we know about God, but God knows about us. He knows what you're going through today. He knows what's going on in your house this week. He knows what's going on in your business. He knows what's going on with your health. Uh, So we know God. That's a wonderful thing, but God knows us. And this is what happens then when we are in relationship with Almighty God. 
Now, because they were in Christ, they were declared to be the sons of God and the heirs of God through Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul had presented that parable about how that when a child was, uh, when a son, though he's heir of all, but he's not mature, he's not grown, and they put him under a governor then who makes sure that he's doing the right thing at the right place at the right time. You're under that authority. But then when you are mature, the the father sees that. Then you become a, a son, and you have all the rights and the privileges that goes along, all the opportunities that goes along then with being the son and the heir and the point that he made was is that when we are in Christ then God has declared us to be a child of God and we are joint heirs with Christ we have then the privileges and the responsibilities that come from being a child of God we enjoy all of that experience why then he said would you want to go back and put yourself under the authority of somebody else. They're like a son then who has been declared an adult and granted freedom and privilege. But who wants to go back and live under authority like a child. You see in every area of maturity there's a progression. We move from kindergarten for example to elementary to middle school to high school to college. And then out on our own. I remember growing up in a small town in southern Arkansas. Our school was all on one campus. Our elementary school was one building. I know that's hard for you folks to imagine here in Cabot, but that's, uh, uh, that's the way it was where I grew up. Uh, my elementary school had a hallway down the middle, and when you come out that hallway, there was a, a sidewalk then that extended all the way across the playground to the street. On one side of that hallway was grades one, two, and three. You say, what about kindergarten? Didn't have kindergarten. Grade one, two, three. On the other side of that hallway was grade four, five, and six. When you went out to the play, playground, one side of that was for the little kids. Grade one, two, three. Across the sidewalk then was the place for the big kids. I remember what it's like being a little kid. Uh, you know, our playground had slides and swings and monkey bars, and that's about it. And I, I used to look longingly across the playground where the big kids were because they had a baseball diamond and they, they played. They had a game that never seemed to end. I don't think anybody ever won. It just went from recess to recess to recess and started up again the next day. But a little kid looking across the sidewalk thinking, man, I wish I could play. Then it come basketball season. They had a basketball court. Man, I wish I could go play. I remember being a, a little kid looking across the sidewalk, yearning to be able to play with the big kids. I tell you, finally that day came and I crossed the sidewalk. I don't remember a single time looking back over that sidewalk saying, man, I wish I could go back over there and play with the little kids. No, that didn't happen. But you know, there you are. Remember, we're all on one campus. It wasn't long before I looked across, and there's the junior high campus and the senior high campus. And, and, and before long, you're looking again, thinking, man, I wish I could go over there with those big kids. They get to leave at lunch and, and go, and uh, man, I want to be with uh, Of course, then you leave high school and go to college, and you don't think around at college then, thinking, man, I wish I was back in high school. Man, I wish I was back in elementary school. With every progression then, as we go along through life, there is a movement. We go forward. And generally speaking, we don't think about going back. But then life happens. And sometimes people do want to go back. 
Paul was talking to a group of people who did. Though they knew God and had known God and they were full-born sons of God and enjoying the rights and privileges of being a child of God, there was something calling them to go back. Why is it that a young adult who can live on his own and have his own life chooses instead to go back home and live with his parents and refuse to work? Why? Why would someone who can live in freedom choose to instead put themselves in that? Why would a nation established on principles of freedom want to go back and and put themselves under bondage to socialism or some other authoritarian form of government? Why? Why? It happens. I bring these up today to simply make a point for us that this is not all that far-fetched. Whether it's in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm, there is something attractive about letting other people make the decisions, letting other people make the choices, let other people take the responsibility, let other people pay the bills. There's something that sounds good about that. Let somebody else do it. I, I don't see with freedom comes responsibility. We make choices and decisions, but then we have to live with the consequences of that. That's, that's what having freedom and even freedom in Christ is. There's something attractive then to a system that tells us what to do and what not to do and, and tells us how to live and how not to live. But it takes away our freedom. Well demonstrated, I think, by the old Jewish proverb, with the shekels (laughs) comes the shackles. Now, whether this sin is in a personal sense or a spiritual sense, bondage comes when we're living by somebody else's rules and someone else's decisions. In our text then, Paul presents three one-word powerful arguments. They're just one word. But they are all of them representing powerful arguments to these people about going back and what they would be going back to when they turned away from the freedom they have in Christ to turn back to these other things. The first thing he talks about is the weakness. How that we leave strength then when we turn from Christ to go to weakness. Why do you turn again to the weak thing? Earlier this week, I sent out 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 as a daily devotional where Paul said uh, that God said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It is a paradox to us, no doubt, that for a believer in Christ living by faith, a time of weakness is actually a time of strength. Because when we recognize our weakness, it is at that moment that we cry out to God. When we can't go on, we don't just fall. We fall to our knees. And when we fall to our knees and we begin to plead with God and cry out to God, then that is when the power of God is unleashed on our life. And that's a good thing because we live in a sense, in a state of perpetual weakness. We are constantly surrounded by examples of all the things that are happening around us that we can neither prevent nor fix. 
We feel then very acutely. We can't stop it. We can't fix it. And we feel our weakness. What do we do then? We cry out to God. And in our weakness then, we find our place of great strength. Paul would speak of how that the law and any system of rules is plagued by an inherent weakness. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. There's an inherent weakness. It is the weakness of the flesh about the law and this system of rules. He returned to that subject in great detail in Colossians chapter 2. He said, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance, an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are changed forever by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That change is so profound that the Bible actually says that old things are passed away and all things are become new. How do you know that is true? You know it by faith. You know it because the Bible tells us that it is so. You might look at yourself and you say, well, I don't look new. <laughs> no, you don't. You might say, I don't feel new. Well, probably not. Uh, I don't act new. Not all the time. How do we know that it's true? We know it by faith. But when we believe it, because it is the promise of God, bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we embrace it by faith. Yes, I am a new creature in Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, we find out that we are. Why? Because Christ lives in us. Christ lives in us. He didn't just tell us now everything's going to be different. Go out and make it so. No, huh? That's not the way it is. Jesus Christ lives in you if you're saved. He lives in me. And it is then by his presence and his power that that new relationship and that new life can become our reality. We know it by faith because the Bible tells us that it's so. We experience by faith because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to make it true in our life. When we are walking then by faith and depending upon the Lord, we do indeed find ourselves being different. But when we try to take on that transformation by ourselves, we don't make ourselves better. We don't. We fall victim to the inherent weakness of the flesh where we either fail miserably or we succeed even more miserably and make everybody else miserable because if we succeed in changing ourselves, then we're lifted up with pride. And it all comes tumbling down. False humility, Paul called it in Colossians 2. The alternative then is to live out the power of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Christ lives in you and Christ lives in me. Why would we turn away from that to anything else? So if we leave strength for weakness, and we do when we turn from Christ, we also leave abundance for poverty. But why would you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? 
So not only when we leave our position as a son and an heir of God through Jesus Christ, do we give up our strength for the weakness of the law? We put ourselves back under the bondage of, of the rules of the law or someone else's rules. We also then give up our abundance in Christ for the poverty of the law. Paul recited a long list of things in Philippians chapter 3 that were his and what he called the Jews' religion. He was born into a prominent and devoted Jewish family. He was circumcised the eighth day of his life. He was born into the stock of Israel. He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a devoted follower and keeper of the law. His zeal for the Jews' religion led him to be a rising star in it, so much so that he persecuted the church of God. Paul looked back on all of those things after he, led, uh, after he came to know the Lord. And he said, all those things that were gained to me, I counted as loss. Think about it. All of his assets were liabilities. Think about it. All of his profits were losses. Think about it. All of his accomplishments were actually failures. Why? Because he thought these things were getting him closer to God when in fact they were getting him further and further away from him. You see, when we return to a life of ritual and religious works to gain God's approval, the Bible tells us that he sees those things as filthy rags in Isaiah chapter 64. Now, I want to be plain with you this morning about something. I want you to hear this and hear this well. God does not look at everything that you've accomplished in your life and say, well, that's nothing to me. That's filthy. That's abominable. That's terrible. There's no meaning in it. You don't look at all of your education, all of your business success, all the things that you've accomplished in your life. You don't look at your marriage, your family, your kids, and say none of that means anything to God. That's not true. But I will tell you this morning that if you look at your accomplishments and all the things that you have done and you hold them up to God saying, look how good I am. Look how worthy I am. Look how much that I have done. If you turn this in into a works-based approach to God, God is going to totally reject you and all of it. When we live our life under the power of the leadership of the Spirit of God, we devote our to Jesus Christ we bow our knee to heaven's king and we live our life in by the word our life becomes a, a, a statement of honor to our Lord and Savior we live our life for him and for his glory things done then in the right way and for the right reason are not offensive to God they glorify God I've always liked how uh, that Paul described how that, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter where you work, <laughs> who signs your paycheck. Paul said, we serve the Lord Christ. So that even when we go to work, you know, your everyday work can be an act of worship to God. As a Christian, it is. Do you do a good job? Uh, you live a good life? Why do, we, why do we do that? 
we do that in honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we don't look at this and say that everything about our life is lost, that nothing that we've ever accomplished means anything. But what, how we do look at it is to understand that we must not present these things to God as a means for our acceptance before him. Because when we do that, the law takes it all away. Remember, nobody keeps the law. A few weeks ago, I, I very emphatically made a statement to you. The law is about every day, everything, everything, every day, for all of your life. Does anybody meet all the demands of the law every day for all of their life? And the answer is no. So the law, if you turn to that, bankrupts us all. It deprives us all of anything to offer before God. The prodigal son was heir of all in the father's house, but he was keeping pigs and envying the slop. <laughs> Think about that one for a while when he ended up in the far country. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that means that because we have Jesus Christ living in us, we have everything that we need in order to be what God wants us to be. We were not saved with a second-class salvation. God has saved us. He has called us with the holy calling. He has made us his own. We are saints and children of God. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I don't say that arrogantly today. I say that thankfully because that, brothers and sisters, is the grace of God at work in your life and mine. But aren't we glad that God is a gracious God and that he has given us in not just some measly thing, but he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Folk, this is not just some ancient issue for the churches at Galatians because we today as Christians are bombarded with somebody else's 10 principles for success. Nine ways to be happy. Nineteen ways to have a happy marriage. Seven things that all good Christians do to change their lives. I mean, they're out there in abundance. Hundreds of things. I'm not saying you can't get some help from them. But I'll tell you, if we embrace that kind of thing, and a lot of people do, when we latch on to that and say, oh, yeah, this is it. It's what I've been looking for. If you've been looking for something besides the Lord Jesus Christ living his life in you, you're looking in the wrong direction. And we're making the exact same decision that the Galatians made so long ago. They chose weakness over strength. They chose poverty over abundance. Lastly, we surrender freedom then to be controlled. But now after you've known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? See, God had delivered them from the bondage of paganism through the grace of Jesus Christ, but they were putting themselves right back under the power of the law, which in turn would put them back under the power of sin and even under the paganism that they left behind. Paul points out some specific things in this passage. Days and weeks and months and years. You observe days and weeks and months and years, he said. 
that referred to their life under paganism. Now, I'm sure that most of us are at least vaguely aware with astrology. And the astrology uh, teachings of astrology were all built around these gods and goddesses that these people worshipped. You might remember back when we had a newspaper that came every day that there was a little horoscope section in there every day. And if I ask you right now what your sign was, I bet most of you could tell me what it was. We're familiar at least a little bit with astrology. And we're familiar enough with it to know that it tells you astrology was built on this very thing. Days and weeks and months and years. Well, this is a good day for you. This is a good day for you to ask for a raise. <laughs> this is a good day uh, for you to seek reconciliation. This is a good week for you. This is a good month. This is a good year. Uh, you know, it's a good time. Uh, you might remember a song that said, uh, you know, when, when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planet and love will fill the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah, I could sing the whole thing and all you 70 folks are, 70s folks are grinning. And uh, I mean people from the 70s, okay? And those of you in 60s, those of you who didn't live through that time, look at me kind of funny, but... We're familiar with that. And that's what this is based on. The interesting thing was, you see, that the paganistic calendar was based on the lunar calendar and uh, based on the stars and, and many of the symbols and, and the feasts and festivals that they had under paganism uh, were also there in Judaism. You know, the devil's always been a counterfeiter. So everything that, that God ever did, you know, the devil has a way of counterfeiting that. So it shouldn't surprise us that these people who grew up in paganism would find things in Judaism and say, oh, yeah, there it is. Well, well you're going to observe Passover. Well, we'll observe Ishtar. You're going to observe the birthday of the sun. Well, we'll observe the birthday of the sun. We've had that all along. And they just blended it all together. Paul saw that building even then. The reason that they were, one of the reasons why they were attracted to Judaism was because it put them under the bondage they were used to. It had somebody telling them what to do. And it gave them basically the same kind of feasts and festivals that they'd had. And they liked that too. Paganism, Paul knew, could easily be covered with a veneer of Christian devotion. But it would have devastating consequences and history tells us that it did. What Paul saw building here in Galatians did come to fruition. There was a time when those paganistic festivals were all brought into Christianity and merged in together. And the interesting thing was Paul would say to the Galatians, you know God and God knows you. That is that you have a real relationship with God. But he knew that their children and grandchildren would only know that hybrid, powerless substitute, the weak, beggarly, bondage kind that would be a formula uh, where legalistic Christianity was combined with paganistic feasts and festivals and it would bring them right under bondage and take them away from Christ Paul said I'm afraid of you I'm afraid for you and it's a very strong word you could literally say he said I'm terrified he was he he's felt that fear very strongly for what he was seeing developing and knowing that future generations would be raised under this hybrid religion if they didn't stop it. 
You understand perhaps why Paul began this letter in such a strong, strong way. And why he has continued his language so strongly. In fact, later on, we'll see in, in, in just a week or so how that Paul would say, I, I wish I could come to you and change my tone. I wish I could drop back from how serious this all is. Right now, he's just scared. Because he sees them turning back. In Romans 6, our same writer then reminds us that we are slaves to whoever we yield ourselves to obey. Doesn't matter who it is or what it is. We're slaves to whoever we yield ourselves to obey. When we give ourselves to somebody else's system spiritually, we in fact then become their servant. I'm here today to remind you that we serve heaven's king and we have one master. You bowed your knee to him and he is now your Lord, your savior, your master. And I want you to know your master, Jesus Christ, is completely trustworthy. Your master is also going to tell you to live under the laws of the land. Your master is going to tell you about your need to fellowship and serve in a New Testament church. Your Lord and master is going to tell you that you need to follow the leadership of your spiritual leaders. So we don't look at this and say, well, I bowed my knee to Jesus and I don't need anybody else. No, uh, that's not the teaching of the Bible. It's not. But I want us to know today that in our heart of hearts... Our true master is Jesus Christ and him alone we must serve. And we can serve him with full confidence because he loves us. He will never lead us astray. He will never lead us away uh, from something that is going to be good for us eternally or provide us with eternal benefit or give God glory. That's not the way God leads. He doesn't lead us away from that. He leads us into it. Rules and religious ritual can never give you freedom and peace and joy. The pleasures of sin may offer temporary satisfaction. But it brings horrible bondage. Because sin is ultimately a taker and not a giver. You might be enamored sometime, young people, with the party crowd. But I can show you what the party crowd does to a lot of people. I've seen it. Sin is not a, a giver. Sin is a taker. Sin puts you in bondage. And though it may offer some temporary pleasure, it doesn't have the joy of Jesus Christ. That is available from only one source. And that is from Him. And nothing this world has ever offered can compare with the joy that is available to us as the children of God. Lastly, this morning, I want to tell you that God isn't in the going back business. He's in the going on business. Going on into the fullness of Jesus Christ. But we'll have to admit, it's easy to go back. It is. Somebody talk about how hard it is to lose weight. I'm going to tell you, it's not hard to lose weight. Over the course of my life, I've lost at least 1,000 pounds. I've lost it 20, uh, 20 pounds at a time and 50 times at least. That, uh, that's probably a conservative estimate of how much weight. It's not hard to lose weight. It's easy to lose weight. 
the hard thing is to keep it gone. I mean, we, we'll find that stuff. We'll find more of it. I'll tell you why, how that works. And we can kind of chuckle about that. But how many times do we see a woman get out of a bad, abusive relationship only to turn around and get into another one just like it? That's not funny. Why would you want to go back? How many times do we see see people go through all of the, the terrible difficulty that goes with detox in order to break themselves free from some the bondage of addiction only to go right back into it? How many times? Ask our law enforcement people, how many times do you see people go through prison and and, and years, years of being in bondage. And finally, they've paid their debt and they're set free. And what do they do? They go right back to do the same things and end right back up in the same place again. Why do we want to go back? I'll tell you why. It's hard going on, it's tough. Being on our own, being in a place of maturity, enjoying the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. I can make it sound good to you because it is good. Yet you know, as as I know, that going on with Jesus Christ can be difficult. Jesus talked about that straight and narrow path. It's hard to stay on it. And after we've been on it for a few years, sometimes going back begins to look good to us. I'm here this morning to remind you that when we turn away from the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ, whatever we turn away for, whatever we go back to, It's neither good nor godly because what we have in Christ is where it's all at. The blessings of heaven are ours in Jesus Christ. Don't turn from that to embrace something else.